Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. By the way, earlier, Sharon, was that you who clapped and said, I thought it was you, and I, I'm like your echo on the other side. That was good. Good job, Gina. It was good. It's okay to celebrate. Conveniently, we're going to talk about that today. So you were a sermon illustration. You didn't even know it. How about that? Well, good morning again. Uh, Pastor Chris is speaking this weekend at a camp, and so I'm here to talk about the next sermon in our series called Gone Fishing. And uh, to open up, I just want to ask a simple question, not very complex. For those of you who are out there who are fishermen or fisherwomen, is that, a word? that might be a word, we don't, we don't know. Uh, why do you fish? Go ahead, audience participation time. We're going to come back to that one. To catch, someone said to catch fish, right? Dinner. Dinner. There we go. You want to catch them because you like to eat them, right? That's good. What was that? To get a suntan. We all have our motives. We're not judging. <laughs> Clearly, I don't believe in that at any time of the year, but regardless. There, there's lots of reasons for fishing, right? People who've caught these up here, maybe you really enjoy the sport, the challenge of catching a big fish. For many people, food. Like, we like to eat fish. Some people don't, but a lot of us do. Fish is good. It sustains us. It takes care of us. Someone also mentioned over here. Was it you, Shar? Yeah. Because it's fun. Anybody out there think fishing is fun? A lot of people seem to enjoy fishing. That's good because it relates to what we're going to be talking about today. Today we're going to talk about the catch. How does God catch a man? What does he do when he rescues somebody? And how are we to follow him in this? The first sermon of this series was about the fish and really what the condition of the fish was. And it's not a pretty picture, right? If you remember, it's pretty bleak and it's pretty dark what our depravity really does look like. The second sermon last week, Pastor Chris talked about uh, the bait, the man and the message, how we communicate the gospel to a lost world and how we need to be okay with the fact that we're going to stink. Remember that? Right? We're going to be an aroma. To some people, it's going to be an aroma of death, and to other people, it's going to be aroma of life when they're being saved by this message. So be prepared to not always be liked. That's part of the implication there. This week, I am talking about the catch and what God does to rescue people and why he invites us into this and how we can follow him in this. So will you open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 15, and I will pray as we begin. Father, I ask uh, just simply that your word would be clear today, that you'd help me make it clear, and that you would work in our hearts to follow you as you invite us to be fishers of men, help us to understand this text rightly and change us. That's my simple prayer. We love you, Lord. Thanks for your word. Amen. Luke chapter 15 contains three stories, very closely related stories. And these stories all have simple names because Jesus' teaching normally is not very confusing. It's pretty simple. The first story is about a shepherd who loses a sheep the lost sheep. The second story is about a woman who loses a coin, the lost coin. And the third story is the parable or the story of a lost son. We call it the prodigal son. And I think all three of those stories, when I explain them today, when we read and see what God's word says, I think they are going to help answer the question and motivate us as to how we go, therefore, and become fishers of men. That's my goal today through these three stories. But first, as we always need to do, we need to understand why these stories are told. What's the backdrop? 
Why did Jesus tell these stories? Who did he tell them to? And really, what was the reason behind all of this? So look with me for the first two verses. That's where we're going to start. It says that the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Feel the grumbling. Everybody start murmuring. Ready? That's what, I didn't say make a cow noise. What was that? Somebody mooed over there. It wasn't even the Leesmans. Like, I don't, so weird. <laughs> See you. Wendy, it's your son, just so you know. Uh, regardless, these stories are told because of these first two verses. Tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus. If you're familiar with the way Jesus teaches, it's because he's a compelling teacher. When he teaches, some things he says are pretty offensive. And so people, wait, what did you just say? They lean in. They're interested. Other times, his teaching seems so good. And people are compelled and drawn to listen to him. But the people who are compelled in this story to listen to Jesus have titles. They are tax collectors and they are sinners. And to be able to understand why Jesus tells these three stories, we got to know what they are like. First of all, the tax collector. These people, it's an understatement to say that these were not very popular people to the Jews. Okay, If you know anything about Jewish history, you'll know that they were utterly despised by Jewish people. Jews did not like tax collectors. Many of you don't like tax collectors, but this is for different reasons. Hear me out. You would think if the Jews didn't like these tax collectors that these tax collectors would likely be people who are non-Jewish. But that's the problem, you see, because these people were Jewish. They were their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, and they were despised because they, instead of standing with their brothers and sisters, they instead gave their loyalty to Rome, the nation who was in oppression over them, in order to cheat and extort money from their Jewish brothers and sisters. If you're familiar at all with The Princess Bride, it always comes back to like four different movies to me. I'm sorry, but get used to it. If you're familiar with The Princess Bride, at one point Princess Buttercup has this dream where this old lady, this old hag, is hurling insults, right? Derek knows. Is hurling insults at her. Scum, queen of refuse, putrescence, you hear all these terrible words. And this is the same mentality that Jewish people have towards tax collectors. They are the scum of the earth because they cheat us in order to side with Rome to oppress us. How dare they? Why would they do this? So tax collectors are not popular. They are hated. They are despised. No wonder why the religious folk of that day, the Pharisees and the scribes, did not approve that Jesus was eating a meal with this type of person. Does that make sense? That's the tax collector. Now you have this more generic term to define the other group of people called the sinners. Everybody wants that label, right? The sinners, what are they like? Really, this is a, a word that's all-encompassing that should be pretty obvious to us. These are non-religious people. These are people who live in fairly open disregard for God and his ways. They're irreligious. They're riffraff. If you think of our culture, you get a pretty good idea. These are people who openly sin, and they don't seem to care much about it. Eh, whatever. Not going to worry about the God thing. 
these people are the type that religious people shouldn't associate with, right? Hmm, maybe not. We will see. So when these types of people draw near to Jesus, another type of people, scribes, Pharisees, teachers of the law, start to murmur. They start to grumble. They start to complain. You can feel it boiling up. And you can imagine the types of things that they would likely say. I can't believe that this Jesus is giving them his time. I cannot. Can you believe what he is doing? The, the rabbi who's this awesome teacher who's gaining in popularity, he's sitting down and he's eating a meal. He's taking his time with this type of person? Are you kidding me? Why would he associate with this kind? Doesn't he know we're the godly ones? We actually, we actually fear God and want to keep his commands. And yet he spends his time with those who don't even care. Grumble, grumble, grumble. These three stories answer the question, how does Jesus respond to their grumblings? As Jesus does, who is the master storyteller, he tells three simple, easy stories that pack such a punch. The first one is the story of the lost sheep. I'm going to treat the lost sheep and the lost coin together, and then I'll talk about the third story at the end. The lost sheep. So look with me starting at verse 3. After they're grumbling, complaining that he receives sinners and he eats with them, Jesus tells them this parable. He tells this story. What man of you, having 100 sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, and then, when he comes home, he calls together all his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me! I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Simple story, right? A few things I'd like to comment on here. First is the fact that Jesus draws them in with something that they really can't refuse. Okay, imagine if you were, if you were a shepherd and you lost one of your sheep. You'd go get it, right? The general populace would say, yeah, and especially if it's your livelihood, you'd want to go retrieve that and take care of it and get it back. Makes sense. So Jesus, as this master storyteller, he's luring them in. Okay, I want you to agree with me. And now that you do, good. I've got you where I want you. This is what Jesus is doing here. He forces them into the story by making them imagine what they would do in the shoes of the shepherd. Any good shepherd would go get the sheep. We all agree to that? That's what you would do. Now that they are in the story, he turns it on them and he says, then why, when I go to look for my sheep and I come back with it, why don't you join on into the rejoicing? You seem to agree that it's good for me to go get my sheep, right? That's what a good shepherd would do. Then why in the world are you grumbling? Why aren't you rejoicing over what I'm doing? Don't you realize what I'm here to do? But instead, they stand far off, aloof, and in their self-righteousness, they grumble and they gripe and they complain. How dare Jesus 
hang out with that kind of people. The teachers of the law and the prophets is what scribes and Pharisees are. That's what they do. That's their profession. So you would think they would know the Old Testament, right? Join with me in uh, Ezekiel chapter 34 for a minute because I have to show something that to me is utterly astounding. Ezekiel chapter 34. This is nothing new for the teachers of the law. They're aware of a concept of a sheep that's lost and what shepherds are supposed to do. In fact, they should be teaching this because it's in their Bible. But they seem to either completely forget it or seem to think that it only applies to other people and not them. This is what Ezekiel the prophet said, and this is hundreds of years before Jesus comes onto the scene as a man. Ezekiel chapter 34, I'm actually reading this out of the NLT because it it flows much better. And it says, this message came to me. This is what Ezekiel says. This came to me from the Lord. This is what God said. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds. I want you to speak against the leaders of Israel. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. What sorrow awaits you, shepherds, who feed yourselves instead of your flocks? This is interesting, isn't it? You see a correlation yet? Shouldn't shepherds feed their sheep? You drink the milk, you wear the wool, and you butcher the best animals, but you let your flocks starve. You have not taken care of the weak, you have not tended the sick or bound up the injured. You have not gone looking for those who have wandered away and are lost. This is his indictment against them. Hundreds of years prior to the three stories we have today. You have not gone looking for the lost, those who have wandered away. Instead, you have ruled them with harshness and cruelty. So my sheep have been scattered without a shepherd, and they are easy prey for any wild animal. They have wandered through all the mountains and all the hills across the face of all the earth, yet no one has gone to search for them. Is this interesting to you yet? To me, this is so fascinating. Verse 7, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, you abandoned my flock and left them to be attacked by every animal. And though you were my shepherds, you did not search for my sheep when they were lost. You took care of yourselves and left the sheep to starve. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I now consider these shepherds my enemies. And I will hold them responsible for what has happened to my flock. I will take away their right to feed the flock. And I will stop them from feeding themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths. The sheep will no longer be their prey. The teachers of the law should be very aware of a prophecy like this directed at teachers of the law. Even coming to preach, to be honest with you, the thing that always comes to my mind is in James where it says, you don't desire to be teachers, many of you, because you're going to be judged with a a harsher strictness. Like that's a reality that should cause any teacher of the Bible to pause in their tracks and tremble before what they actually do. But these scribes and Pharisees, these shepherds, rulers of the people, this does not connect for them in the least. This is not the first time 
God has spoken against poor leadership and an unwillingness to go rescue the lost. This has been a theme all throughout the scriptures, and now Jesus is bringing it home here in Luke chapter 15 with people who are grumbling that he is doing the exact same thing that he intended to do. You see the connection there? This is astounding to me. We're going to come back to verse 7 later. But in the meantime, we're going to jump forward to the next story. We now come to the parable of the lost coin. Verse 8 of Luke chapter 15 talks about a woman and a coin that she lost. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This story is very similar in structure to the other one, right? You have something that was lost by, some, by an owner, and they go seeking diligently to find it. When they find it, yes, they take it back home. They invite their friends to come celebrate this. This is the same type of story. In here, when we think of the woman losing one of her ten coins, uh, the, the type of coin that's, that the Bible says that is is a drachma, and at that time of day, it basically represented what a day's wage would be for a laborer. So I'm just kind of, just to get us a grip of how much money that is, if, if you made as a laborer twelve fifty an hour, an eight-hour eight day, that would be 100 bucks a day. This woman has 10 coins, so 10 of these, which would be 1,000 bucks to her name. And she loses a $100 bill. That's what it would be like for us. Now, all the Dutch people in the room, your hearts are starting to beat as I tell this story. You're like, whoa, a hundy? Like, that's a lot of money. Yes, especially to someone who only has 1,000 bucks to their name. This is a serious deal. You know, God actually brought a real-life illustration about this to me just yesterday in his divine providence. I need you to know I have my wallet here, and I'm going to hold it closely for just a moment. Because yesterday, I did not have my wallet. I'm getting the kids ready to get in the van and trying to, it's like herding ADD cats. You know, I'm, no, keep your boots on. No, hat, okay, ugh. Finally, I get them in the van, and I do my normal three-pat check where I have a keys, my cell phone, and my wallet, and there's no wallet. Ah. Okay, so kids, start buckling yourselves in. I close the door. Lock them in. Okay, good. I'm going back in the house. There's only really two, maybe three places I put my wallet. The nightstand, no wallet. That's its place. I'm systematic. Why isn't it? Okay. Uh, pants pocket. Maybe I left it in my pants. I don't do that, but I'll give myself the benefit of the doubt. Okay, look in my pants pocket. No wallet. I go out to the counter, searching frantically now because I'm already late. I've got somewhere to go, and I don't have my wallet. Now, legally, you're not supposed to drive without your license. I know this. I broke a rule, but it's okay. I had to. (laughs) I can't find my wallet. So I go out to the van where my three delightful little children are. Hey, guys, have you seen Daddy's wallet? Does anybody know where it is? My kids, who are normally the most talkative human beings on the planet, It's like a reverse miracle happened, and they became mute. You guys know where my wallet is. i got to find it. And I get this blank stare into oblivion. They have no idea. Nora, Judah, Zai, look at me. Have you guys seen Daddy's wallet? And then from the back of the van, Nora, my sweet daughter, "Uh, Dad? I'm like, oh, no. That could be very bad. Uh, Let's find out. Yeah? Um... 
yesterday, I, I saw your wallet, and I thought it would be funny to hide it. Like, you know how like we like to play hide and seek? And I'm like, okay, where did you hide it? Well, I was going to do that, but then I got distracted because you know the boys. <laughs> like, you're five years old. Anyway, you know the boys. So, okay, where did you put it? I put it on the table. I run back inside, searching the table, looking underneath. No wallet. Hey, boys, go back in the van. Do you guys know where daddy's wallet is? Judah goes, I don't know. And Zai looks at me and goes, no. So I, like, the kids are in there. They're buckled in. The car's already warming up. I, I look for probably 10 more minutes, frantically. I'm looking under couches. This is what the woman in the story is doing. She is looking intently for the thing that she lost. She wants to find it. We all understand what it's like to look for a lost wallet, lost money, because of this simple truth. Something that is valuable to us gets searched for. You would agree? If it has value to us, it doesn't have to have value to other people, but if it does to us, we look for it. And I think, as obvious as that sounds, that that's the point of this second story. Jesus, in this second story about a coin, is communicating that he searches out what is valuable to him. People, lost people, sinners, tax collectors, people that are being written off, they're valuable to him. And so he will go search until he finds it. In the first story, you see that he searches for his lost sheep. In the second story, the lady is searching for her lost coin. Why are they doing this? It's because they're his. They belong to him. John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own. So God goes looking for his own. And when he goes looking for his own, he finds his own. That's one of the points in the story that I have to bring out. Because it's not as if God is searching frantically for it like I was and, oh no, whoops, guess I couldn't find it. That's not what it's like with God. When he searches for his own, he searches until he finds what he is looking for. We get home later in the day. I forgot to resolve the story in first service. They were like, what happened? I'm like, did you listen? No, but what happened to your wallet? You know, I saw that you were holding it. I finally, we searched the house, and I finally found it. It was in like a, a dresser drawer in the top, pushed back in the living room, like in a bureau. And then I go and ask the boys, oh, Judah goes, oh yeah, I put it there. <laughs> but I found my wallet, okay? So it's all good. What's up, Boyd? I don't think Jesus would want me to do that, Boyd. <laughs> Tell me if you think he does. We'll talk now. The reality is, is when God loses something, he always finds it because it's his. Does that make sense? It's his and he will find it. Luke 19 verse 10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Not just seeking, but saving, finding, and rescuing. This is what God does, gone fishing. This is what God does in the catch. You'll notice that I didn't address verse 10. I will, but I'm going to come back to that later. So now you have 7 and 10 to remember, okay? Now we look at the third and final story that Jesus tells. And just as a reminder, why does he tell the story? It's because Pharisees and scribes are grumbling that Jesus would dare associate with that kind of person. Verse 11, And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, 
Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there, he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. This is not a good profession for a Jewish person. That makes sense? Verse 16 is sad. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. But nobody gave him anything. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? Yet, But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt what? Compassion. And he ran toward him and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son starts his pre-recorded speech, right? He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father cuts him off before he makes his request to be a slave. In verse 22, he said to his servants, No, no, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and put shoes upon his feet. And, and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. Why? Verse 24, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. And they began to celebrate. I'm going to stop there for now. This is incredible. This picture of God is really like very few that we get that's so clear where you see the compassion of God for us, for humanity that is lost in sin. And when you see this, your heart, even as I finished reading the story, I saw many of you do, because it's that good, amen? The reality that God runs to his children and celebrates their return and doesn't stand off like this and be like, okay, you can come back. If this and this and this and this, he hears their repentance and he welcomes them freely back to the fold. There's a few things that I have to mention in this story because to me it's so good not to. And the first one is uh, verse 12. The son is literally saying to his father when he wants to get the inheritance, he's essentially saying to him that to me you are as if you are dead. So could I please have my money now and leave? This is an incredibly inappropriate and presumptuous request of any son, especially a younger son in this culture, to make of his father. Dad, I know that when you die and kick the can, then I'm going to get something, but here's the deal. I'd like to leave now, so can I just have the money? You see how disrespectful that is? That's what's being said here in verse 12. I would 
prefer not to be under your roof anymore, so could I just take what I'm owed and leave? That's what I want. This should remind all of us of our sin nature. It's the heart that says, I would want your benefits, but I don't really want you. We want God's forgiveness. We want to make sure we're okay, but to actually spend time with our Father in prayer, oh, that drudgery. In verse 13, it says that he goes to a distant land. This is clearly a Gentile land, and he's tending pigs because he's completely squandered away all the money that his father willingly gave to him. This is a shameful and disgraceful place for this son to be. But then, the beauty. Ready? Verse 17 happens. I just want to read three words very slowly. But when he came to himself, Usually when we say something like that, like somebody comes to, it's because they were unconscious, right? Whoa, I, you came to and what happened? You know, what in the world? That's the imagery we should have here. When this son comes to and he finally realizes, what in the world have I been doing? And this is a glorious mystery to me because... What happens in the heart of a sinner that allows or enables them to now see things as they really are? To see things clearly that brings about true godly sorrow that results in actual repentance. They're turning from sin. To me, this is the most astounding reality that happens in the heart of any sinner. And if you are a Christian today, this is something that has happened to you. This is the doctrine or the teaching of regeneration. You familiar with that word? If you're not, good news. It's really short and easy to understand. Basically, regeneration is this. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of God that takes a dead heart and makes it alive. That simple. It's not a work that a human does. We can't regenerate ourselves. Why? Because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But this is a work of God where he comes in and make something that's dead alive. John 3, when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, he tells them that you must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. That's what born again means. Not your first birth, which led to spiritual death, but you need to be born again now to a second birth, experiencing spiritual life. The things that you used to have a dislike and an apathy and a hatred toward God, and now, all of a sudden, if this has happened to you, you realize, I actually want to follow his ways. Like, that doesn't make any sense. This is what regeneration is. John 3 talks about exactly this thing, about being born again. Ezekiel 36, it was prophesied about 600, 700 years prior to when the Spirit comes down after Jesus resurrects. The Spirit comes down at Pentecost. And Ezekiel 36 says there's going to be a day where you're no longer going to have a heart of stone, but I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to sprinkle you with clean water, and I will send my spirit and cause you to walk in my... How does this happen? This is not something that we do. Regeneration is something God does in us. Titus 3 talks about the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And 2 Corinthians 5 very clearly says, when you believe you're a new creation in Christ. The old is gone as we sing. The new has come. What you've completed in me, making me new, it's a reality. It's completely done. Is this astounding to you? That God would do this in us? 
Basically, regeneration, in my mind, I just think it takes a person from a God-hater and transforms them into a God-lover. That's regeneration. The desire for this wayward son in Luke 15 to repent, see things as they really are, turn from his miserable and sinful condition, and go back to his father, this can only bubble up from the fountain of regeneration. This is Holy Spirit work in a heart. The best illustration I have of this is one actually a couple friends told me lately. Imagine that somebody is sleeping on a bed, somebody from your family. Probably not wise to try to wake them up, but just imagine with me this moment. Somebody's sleeping, so therefore they're unconscious. They're snoring away in dreamland. And you desire to wake them up. There are many ways to do this. But for this analogy, God basically leans over this dead person who is completely spiritually dead, who is totally asleep, and it's like he just says two simple words. Wake up! I saw some of you jump, okay? That's good because that's intentional. What does God do when he regenerates a human heart? Wake up. No more of this. Now this. You're no longer going to live in your death. I'm rescuing you. Now you're living for me. Go and become fishers of men. This is what it's all about. Did the person ask to be woken up? No. Do we give ourselves new life? No. It's impossible. Someone has to wake you up and that someone is God himself. This is the aha moment when you realize that sin wasn't worth it. No temporary promise of sin is ever going to compare with the eternal promises of God. And this repentance leads to real, authentic joy. Look with me at verse 20. He arose, the son, and he came to his father. But while his father was far off, basically he saw him coming. Or while the son was far off, his father saw him and he felt compassion for him. This is what that means. The father was looking for his son. Verse 20 also talks about this compassion he feels. And so he runs and embraces him and kisses his son because my boy is finally home. No greater joy could I have in this moment than that he has returned. I think we need a visual of this. So I need someone, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to start embracing and kissing somebody madly. Not going to happen. But really, the, even the tense of these Greek verbs meant that it was a continual action. It wasn't just a hearty handshake. Well, glad you're back, son. Thank you. Uh, come back in. Uh, here's the door. It wasn't stoic at all like that. The father sees him, and he takes off towards his son. And when he finds him, it is, if you know Christiana's dad at all, Paul Newton, it is the Paul Newton hug of all hugs. It is the bear hug around the neck, lifts you up, and you're like this, like completely flailing, because there is such a close connection when the son is finally embraced by his father. Do you see the picture here? It is a beautiful reality when God sees his kid and goes and gets them. Amen? This is the joy. There was no peck on the cheek. This was a bro hug, if you know what I mean. Bro hug. They had a moment, if you will. And finally... New sandals are strapped to his calloused feet 
A robe of the family is placed upon him. The family's ring is set upon his finger, and his son is welcomed home with the fatted calf being killed because there's going to be a barbecue tonight. We're about to celebrate good times. Come on. There's about to be a party tonight because the son is finally back home. When we talked about rejoicing earlier, Sharon, yes. When you realize, ah, it's so good. I'll get back to notes, Jared. Uh, This joy is real because God here, we see him as a laughing, joyful, and celebrating God. And too often we view him as a stoic, dead-to-all-emotion God, which is not true of the God we worship. This joy that he has and all of heaven has is real, yet so is the gloom that comes in the room when the older brother arrives. This, as one commentator says, is the difference between spring and winter. The candles start to dim and freeze. Ice now drips from the chandeliers and the flowers wilt when the older brother walks into the room. Let's see what happens. Verse 25. Even the first word is great. Now. Now something different happens. And just by way of reminder, why are these three stories being told? Because the Pharisees and scribes would not enter into the joy that Jesus evidently had while rescuing sinners. Okay, that being said, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house and heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come home. The darndest thing, your father has killed the fattened calf for him because he's received him back, safe and sound. Isn't this incredible? 28, but he was angry. And he refused to go in. His father came out to him and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, hear the disdain there? Not even his brother anymore. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. (laughs) And the father simply replies, Son, You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother, he was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is now found. How is it that you can't enter into this? As I promised, back to verses 7 and 10, to remind us what happens at the end of the first story. The sheep is found. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In your mind, when I say righteous persons, do air quotes. Because that really gets the sense of what's happening here. One sinner who repents causes infinitely more joy than 99 righteous people who don't need any repentance. Look at verse 10. After the woman loses her coin and finds it, She calls her friends, rejoice with me. And verse 10 says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So not only is God rejoicing over this, but the entire heavenly realm, all the angelic beings 
are joining on in the song every time a person puts their faith in Christ. Yet we sit in very nice golf clap. Dead has become alive. That's a big deal, right? That is a big deal when God rescues a soul. There is joy in heaven over a sinner who repents. The angels celebrate when a sinner repents. And then in verse 23 and 24, you get this giant party that the father lavishes upon his wayward son because he's finally come home. And then you see verse 28 through 30, and you see the response of an older brother whose every word drips with bitterness and gall. No joy whatsoever. This son is self-righteous, and he overstates his performance, especially in verse 29 when he says, Look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command. I would just want to say, really? Like, never? You seem to have a pretty high opinion of yourself. And what, was your, was your dad just a taskmaster too? He wasn't an actual father for you to love and enjoy? He was convinced of his own goodness and therefore blind to the reality of his own embittered heart, which is the problem in the heart of the scribe and the Pharisee in this story. No willingness to rejoice over what God has done. This entire chapter is about joy. So what does it say if self-righteous people don't rejoice over the things that God rejoices over? Maybe they're not what they think they are. The frustrating, potentially, or intriguing part of this parable to me is the fact that it ends open-ended. It, nowhere, there's, there's no verse 33 that says, oh, and the older brother decided to go in the party. Or, oh, the older brother stayed far off. I like closure, so it would be really nice if I knew that, but we don't. It doesn't tell us if they entered the party, because it was, I think, an open invitation to say, are you going to enter in now or not? But if we know what happens to the majority of the Pharisees, it seems, we know what most of them did. At the time in Luke 23 that Jesus was handed over, they were the ones leading the charge with the people, saying, away with this man, crucify, crucify, crucify him. Again, I don't think all of them were this, but maybe some of them did enter the party, but it doesn't seem like many did. This parable is still open-ended for us, though. The question is simple. Will you enter the party? Will you rejoice with a God who celebrates the lost now found? That's the call. If you're a note-taking type, I have a few points of application for us. Because the question I brought up at the beginning was, how does God catch a man? What does he do in them, and how do we follow him in this? The first five things I have to say are for people who profess to believe the gospel, who believe that who believe this message. And the last thing to say is for those who don't. The first uh, point of application is this. We who are rescued cannot look at the lost without compassion. We, we can't allow ourselves to do that. That's going to be a temptation for every one of us because we tend to have that hardened Pharisee heart, right? But we cannot allow ourselves to live there. We must be transformed by a passage like this. And when we see a God who feels compassion and who desires to go rescue a sheep and a coin and a son, we need to ask God that we would have those same hearts as well. We need to have the heart that God did. The second point is this. We who are rescued, it's not an option. We must follow Christ's command to go fishing. Too often, I think, we, we believe that some of the things in the Bible are suggestions rather than commands. Go, therefore, and make disciples is not a suggestion. That's what we're about as the church, right? So we, each one of us who professes Christ, needs to go and do this. 
And Chris is going to talk more about that next week. I think oftentimes we wonder about what people will think of us, and we mistakenly believe that it's up to us. But may I remind you that you're just a seed sower. This should take the pressure off entirely. Your job is to sow seed. God is the one who makes it water. Amen? Your job is to tell people the hope that you have. God's job is to regenerate their hearts. Leave that to him. That's, you're never going to do it. The third point I have is that those who are rescued must commit to pray for the lost. We say this often, but it's hard to really commit to doing. If indeed we believe that the only way that a human heart is changed is by the Spirit of God, when the heart is regenerated, then we ought to ask the Spirit of God to transform the darkened hearts of those around us. And we've got to commit to doing it. Continually bring them before your Father. Why? Because he delights to rescue. I would ask you that each one of us would, and I have someone in mind for me too, but just commit to pray for somebody today. And in the next months, just lock that person every day in your prayers and ask that God would change their heart because it's not your job to change it. Fourth point is that we who are rescued must be reminded that though God can and does use our arguments and personalities, he alone saves. Not us. You know, the whole like notches in my belt thing with, oh, I led somebody to Christ. Like we want people to be led to Christ, but I think a better way of saying it is that Jesus, the Holy Spirit leads people to Christ and he uses us as tools in the most condescending way of the word. Like we're just his tool. That's okay. But we need to be faithful to do what we are called to do. He alone saves. And the last point for believers that we who are rescued need to get, this one's a little more pointed, so sorry, not sorry. We who are rescued need to get off of our religious, self-righteous high horses and learn to rejoice in the rescue again. Right, Sharon? Yeah, she knows what I'm talking about. We need to stop looking at people with down our noses, our arms crossed. <laughs> well, I heard they got saved. Well, good. They needed it. We wouldn't say that out loud, right? But we know what our hearts are like. Remember, you were there too. And you were a rescued fish. And rescued fish need to go tell other fish how they can be rescued. That's our job. We need to learn to rejoice in the rescue again. As I said earlier, not a simple golf clap, but when somebody's life is transformed, let's learn to celebrate that again. Because that is a miracle an eternal one that causes eternal joy in the heavens when a sinner repents and turns to God. The last point is for those who don't believe yet. Those whose hearts are pricked by this message to come back, like the prodigal son did, by the call to repentance, to turn from your sin and turn to a God who loves you more than you can ever imagine. Today is the day of salvation, as the scriptures say. We must repent and believe. Like the younger son, wandering will only lead to your misery and ultimately it will lead to your spiritual death. So, go back to your father. He is better than you ever could imagine. 1 Peter chapter 2 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. And here's the sheep metaphor. For we were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Let's have the worship team come back up. Um, 
They're going to lead us in two songs. The closing question I have for all of us here is uh, kind of a weird one, but I think it's I think it's the point. If I were to ask you, how would the two brothers uh, describe their father? What would you think? How would the older brother describe his father in in the story of the prodigal son? I think this is a uh, assumption, but I think he would say, honestly. My dad's a fool. He killed this nice fattened calf for my idiot brother who squandered away all of his money with prostitutes. My dad's kind of an idiot. To be honest with you, I have no respect for him whatsoever. In fact, he's the type of guy who receives sinners and eats with them. But I think if you ask the younger brother how he would describe his father, think he would tell you, I can't even describe for you what it's like to be loved by my dad. Words escape me. This man is incredible. I couldn't imagine having a better father than this one. In fact, I call him Abba, my dad. I can't believe how kind he is. I can't believe how generous he is. And that he would welcome me back. This is cause for eternal praise. I think it's time that we celebrate the rescue again. We celebrate when the lost become found, when the dead become alive. And so the offer to all of us is to, hey, come in and enter the party. Don't stand far off any longer. Let's pray.